0: We're back. Today, we bring to you a man who really needs no introduction if you listen to the radio. Bob Edwards hosted National Public Radio's Morning Edition for 29 years. In 1999, he received the prestigious Peabody Award for Excellence in Broadcasting. Bob Edwards has likewise received an Edward R. Murrow Award from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and Ed Murrow is the subject of a new book by Bob Edwards titled Edward R. Murrow, and the birth of broadcast journalism. Forty-nine years after his death, Murrow remains the single most distinguished name in the history of American broadcasting. And we're pleased to discuss him with our guest today. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Bob Edwards. Thank you very much. In your acknowledgement, you note that because Edward Bliss Jr. had worked for Murrow and Walter Cronkite, his location at American University determined your choice of graduate schools.
1: I wanted to learn from somebody who had been where I intended to go, which at that time was CBS News, which was someplace worthy of uh, working. It was uh, the Tiffany Network, but that was before
0: a lot of other things happened. So you had your sights set on CBS from the beginning. Oh, yeah. Excellent. Um, You say that Murrow virtually invented broadcast journalism as we think of it today, yet he had no training as a journalist. What prompted a 29-year-old CBS executive to try and advance radio journalism as it existed in 1937? The war.
1: He was in Europe as um, CBS's European director, and his job was not to be on the air, but to um, arrange broadcasts for CBS in New York from Europe. And specifically, uh, at one point, children's choirs. (laughs) CBS wanted to hear children's choirs. At a time when Europe was about to blow up, Murrow could see the war coming. He hired William L. Shirer, who was a veteran a newspaper and wire service reporter, to help him out, because he needed some journalism expertise on the staff. And um, then uh, Hitler annexed Austria in um, 1938, and uh, Murrow and Shirer found themselves on the air, when neither of them was supposed to be. But uh, it was an emergency. They did... Uh, fantastic account of what was going on with uh, the annexation of Austria and um, William Paley, the chairman of CBS, liked it so much he ordered them to do another broadcast the next day and then the next day and and the regular nightly newscast was born. Until then, radio had been largely events coverage. You covered trials. Uh, Announcers were sent out to cover press conferences and political conventions and the like. But there was no Enterprise journalism, no digging up news stories, original reporting. The war started that, and, and Murrow and Shira became the nucleus of this fabulous group of um, reporters that included Eric Severide, Howard K. Smith, Richard C. Hodlett, some fantastic reporters.
0: Murrow uh, celebrated for his eye for talent. Could you say few words about some of those other men, Severide, Hodlett?
1: Yeah, he, he wanted smart people. <laughs> and who could blame him? He... Um, Radio was a place for pretty voices. He didn't care about pretty voices. In fact, uh, his bosses in New York thought that the people he hired had terrible voices. Didn't like Eric Severide at all. But but Murrow wanted uh, smart people uh, and people with contacts uh, who would be helpful in in reporting the war. So he hired um, Charles Collingwood and uh, Howard K. Smith, who were both Rhodes scholars. He hired um, Winston Burdett who had finished Harvard in three years, magna cum laude. Uh, That's the kind of people Murrow wanted.
0: You talk in your book about how important Murrow became to the political battle in this country over whether America should get involved in World War II. And uh, we're going to dig up an excerpt from that broadcast.
1: This is Trafalgar Square. The noise that you hear at the moment is the sound of the air-raid sirens. I'm standing here just on the steps of St. Martin's in the fields. A searchlight just burst into action off in the distance. One single beam sweeping the sky above me now. People are walking along quite quietly. We're just at the entrance of an air raid shelter here and I must move this cable over just a bit so people can walk in. There's another searchlight just square behind Nelson's statue.
0: Murrow remains politically neutral in that broadcast, yet he places the Nazi menace right into American living rooms.
1: Absolutely true. In 1940, that was still astonishing. But this was a real war. Those bombs were killing people. Uh, That was still a novel thing to have in your, you know, the sounds of actual war in your living room. The British military didn't want Merle on that rooftop in London they were afraid that that he would become a beacon for um, German uh, bombers but Winston Churchill um, cleared the way for him to be up there because he knew what effect Merle's reporting would have in New York and and the rest of America Um, he wanted America to know what Britain was up against he wanted America's help he wanted to break American neutrality Frankly, so did uh, Franklin Roosevelt on this side of the Atlantic. And, uh, you know, he thought that uh, Murrow's broadcasts were very useful in bringing America and Americans out of their isolationism. They wouldn't have anything to do with what they called Europe's troubles. That neutrality ultimately was broken by the Lend-Lease Act, in which the United States provided ships and other material. Britain absolutely credited Murrow with that development.
0: Now, you talk in the book about uh, the time before he went to work for CBS, he did a lot of work getting uh, uh, of, of uh, scholars out of Nazi Germany.
1: Yeah, he worked for the, the education arm of the Carnegie Endowment, the Institute of International Education, and the appeal was made to the institute to um, help out all these uh, uh, first German and then other European countries as they um, were uh, taken over by the Nazis. First thing the Nazis did was burn books. Um, it went into libraries. I mean, thought and and education were an enemy. And these these scholars had uh, nowhere to go. They were they couldn't function anymore in, in uh, Nazi Germany and or in the other countries under Nazi influence. So uh, the appeal was made to the to the institute, and a committee was formed. And Merle really ran it. He was the deputy, but you know, in any organization, deputies run it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it was Merle who brought to America Herbert Marcuse, Hans Morgenthau, Paul Tillich, uh, Martin Buber, Thomas Mann. You know, real slackers all. And (laughs) um, and their influence on American culture, the arts, academia, uh, science, religion, just thought. It for, lasted for decades, and and it's, it continues when you think that the proteges of those men are are still on American campuses today. Sure, I mean if he had done nothing nothing else in his life, that that's worthy of a book. The records are all at the uh, New York Public Library, and a lot of them were only made public um, fairly recently, long after Murrow's death. So the details are just coming out on that contribution that he made. Um, before he ever got into journalism or hooked up with CBS.
0: So Murrow certainly had a, an, an anti-Nazi uh, attitude coming in, having seen what they were up to before the rest of America, yet he was facing a bit of a dilemma having to be, quote, balanced, unquote, as he was covering what was going on in <laughs> Europe.
1: Well, I don't think, you know, anyone required two sides on, on Hitler.
0: <laughs> well, he didn't think so, did he?
1: No, and, and others, too. I mean, Richard C. Hattelet had been a, uh, a prisoner of the Gestapo. Um, back when he worked um, for United Press, before the United States got in. There was no love lost there. Uh, William El Shiro, of course, was many years in Berlin and smuggled out uh, his diary at the uh, bottom of a, a crate filled with um, CBS scripts. So the Nazis thought it was just the scripts. At the bottom he had his diary, which became a fabulous bestseller, um, Berlin Diary. At the time, it was probably the um, biggest-selling nonfiction book, and uh, followed that up later when he finished up at, at CBS with um, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. Which, by
0: Basically. the way, your book has inspired me to pull off my shelf <laughs> and, to, and to commence reading.
1: It's a monster book, but it's, it's the Bible as yeah. far as um, that, that era
0: goes. Well, you talk of Richard C. Hodlett. He's still alive. He's still active, writes for the Christian Science Monitor. Daniel Shore, hired by Murrow in 1953, is still uh, working for NPR. Could you comment on uh, these men's work and their, um, and their longevity?
1: Yeah, isn't that great? I'm going to meet Dick Hodlett in person uh, in a couple of weeks when I get to New England. Um, and he was very helpful. He read, read the manuscript, and so did Dan Shore, and made suggestions, corrections, and the like. And uh, Marvin Kalb claims to be the last guy that Murrow hired. And (laughs) Marvin gave me some uh, interesting little things about the personal Murrow. He said that when Murrow would would come into a room, enter a restaurant or whatever, everybody stopped and turned and looked at him. (laughs) There was just some kind of um, charisma, you you know. They just wondered, who is this guy? even before they recognized him as the fellow on their television set.
0: There's something about him.
1: Yeah, just an aura. And, and uh, Marvin said that, that Murrow never noticed this. He was always looking at the ground. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow. The book is Edward R. Murrow and the Birth of Broadcast Journalism, and we're speaking with author Bob Edwards. One person who turned down Murrow was Walter Cronkite. In 1943, <laughs> Cronkite decided to stay as a UP wire service reporter, and uh, it's pretty clear that the two men never really got along afterwards. Why do you think that was?
1: Murrow was very fond of stealing UP's reporters. He got Bill Downs, um, Charles Collingwood, Howard K. Smith, and Richard C. Hoddle at all from UP and others, and he wanted uh, Cronkite, Um, but uh, UP gave Walter a $25 raise, (laughs) and that was enough for Walter to stay and merle wasn't used to being told no he wasn't used to being turned down and he took it personally and uh years later when cronkite did work for uh cbs television in the 50s they uh worked together and were always cordial on camera together but um socially at parties and the like uh, there was an icy uh, relationship there and merle just um Never forgotten, never forgave.
0: David Halberstam, I think, has a little anecdote about a hostess describing the two men taking dueling pistols off the wall, and they weren't being 100% kidding. (laughs) That's (laughs)
1: right. You know, they probably each had a couple of soda pops by that point, too. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I
0: I love your anecdote, which I'd seen nowhere else about uh, after getting inebriated at the Christmas party, Murrow prevailing upon uh, Robert Trout to do the broadcast.
1: Yeah, that a story. was that was before um, when Murrow was still in New York in his earliest days at uh, at CBS. He was director of talks, so he was a you know junior executive, and so Trout um, you know was uh, an announcer, a newscaster, and and Murrow outranked him. And so Murrow is insisting on taking Trout's script and going on the air uh, after the Christmas party, and Trout says that, you know, I knew it was wrong, but <laughs> what could I do? He he's outranked me.
0: No one ever tried that with you at the Morning Edition, did they?
1: Well, no one. no one apparently was listening. <laughs> it was Christmas. And, uh, you know, the execs, the, the suits, never uh, complained or said anything to either one of them. And uh, Trout said Murrow was flawless. You know, it was his very first time at the microphone and speaking to a national audience.
0: You, uh, you talk about uh, Winston Churchill taking interest in Murrow. And uh, when, when, when his boss, uh, CBS chairman Bill Paley, came to Britain, uh, he was basically introduced to a lot of people through Murrow. And can you talk about Murrow's unique relationship with, with his boss?
1: Yeah, they were tight um, at first, during the war. Um, Paley got interested in CBS. Uh, he, he, he and his dad ran a cigar company before it was even called CBS. Um, he, I think it was the United Broadcasting, I don't know what it was, but um, they sold a lot of cigars advertising <laughs> this, this new thing, this radio thing. And so Paley just went and bought the thing called it cbs and built it into this rival of uh, nbc uh which was more established and the way he did that was largely through murrow and his wartime reporting uh so paley owed a lot to murrow murrow would walk the streets of london during the blitz and the bombs falling all around them and they they forged this bond during the war that that stood murrow in good stead um Uh, going into the television age, but that's where it fell apart. CBS had had changed. It was now uh, television and radio. It uh, had many other kinds of properties, you know, movie studio, uh, record company, real estate holdings. It was a big conglomerate. And um, what Murrow was doing on television were these controversial, aggressive investigative reports that upset people. It upset sponsors who didn't want controversy. They wanted frothy entertainment that could right. sell their products. Um, it upset the FCC and um, and Congress. And Moreau was just literally bad for business. Besides, the the, the programs didn't make money. They were ratings losers because right. they were news, right. news that the old-fashioned way, not news of today, which makes money because it's not really news.
0: In your afterword, you say, I could quote you, that saying that uh, Paley was trying to make money, not save the world. Murrow yeah. believed CBS could do both.
1: That's right. That's right. And believe they should. Yeah. So they had a falling out. And, and ultimately, Murrow um, was marginalized at, uh, at CBS, pushed to the sidelines, no longer hosting a program on a regular basis. He realized he was done and yeah. went into government.
0: You note that Murrow's demise would have come even sooner had not CBS a commitment to public service in the 1950s. And the book, you talk uh, rather passionately about the further downturn of TV news in the 1980s. Could you talk a bit about the decline of television over the last two decades?
1: The, um, the news was done for public service, and uh, it was a, not, not to make money. Uh, along the way, the networks became owned and operated by... Hollywood studios and big corporations who uh, feel everything should make money. Uh, Disney owns ABC and figures, well, you know, the theme parks make money. Uh, The news division ought to make money, too. So it does. And the way a news program competes with entertainment programs is to become an entertainment program. And that's why you have news looking like it is today with Britney and... (laughs) Kobe.
0: Infotainment.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, grisly murders that are just titillating. They don't make you a better person, a better citizen, or tell you anything you need to know to get through a day.
0: Well, you note the founder of Clear Channel saying, uh, we're not in the business of providing news and information, so where are the aspiring Ed Murrows to go in the future? They're, uh, they're welcome here. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: yeah, we could use some of those in public radio. I mean, that, that's why you have public radio. You don't have the commercial pressures. You don't. We don't have to make money, uh, so we can still do the news for the right reason. Um, so we're doing the the kind of news that Murrow was doing on uh, not very sexy subjects like education and environment and energy and you know, the the things that need talking about, um, not just um, who J Lo is seeing. Right. And who is J Lo seeing? <laughs> <laughs> I have to watch the news. We, we can't keep know. up.
0: <laughs> you say in your book that Murrow set the highest standards for the reporting of news on radio and television. His facts were solid, his scope thorough, his analysis on target, and his principles uncompromised. To this day, he, he is cited as the example of how a broadcast journalist should function, although most people alive today never heard or saw him in live broadcast. Yet his work is archived. So where, where can listeners go to hear Edward R. Murrow in action? And I think they should.
1: Yeah, there are records, um, which I guess I'm sure have been updated to CD or DAT or something. Um, I have them as phonograph records.
0: We could put a plug in maybe for World War II on the air, a book <laughs> I bought inspired after I read yours, which has uh, 50, um, 50 broadcasts uh, yeah. uh, on CD. Yeah,
1: they're around, and you find little ads in the backs of magazines, you know, along with know other old-time radio programs and the like so they're around and um, of course they're at the Museum of uh, television and radio which has offices in New York and Los Angeles yeah yeah. Um, Murrell's papers are at Tufts University and there are also collections um, at Washington State uh, his alma mater and um, Mount Holyoke which is Janet Murrell's alma mater
0: Well, Bob Edwards, thank you for talking with us about Edward Murrow, and we hope that everyone will go out and get a copy of Edward R. Murrow and the Birth of Broadcast Journalism.
1: Well, you're very kind. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks again. You bet. Well, we'd certainly like to refer you to the Museum of Television and Radio. We have a link on our website, www.radioparallax.com. In fact, the director... Barbara Dixon spoke with us last year. Uh, If you're down in Los Angeles, and I guess there's one in New York as well, uh, you should go and take a look at some of these television and radio efforts of Murrow's Boys. And uh, speaking of that, the book, The Murrow Boys, by Stanley Cloud and Lynn Olson, uh, won numerous awards a few years back. That is well worth uh, your time to read, as is The Powers That Be, by David Halberstam. Halberstam analyzes CBS, Time Life, the uh, Washington Post, and the Los Angeles Times and tells the fascinating histories of each one of these uh, powerhouses of American media. We'd also recommend World War II on the Air, a a fine book uh, by Markle Bernstein and Alex Lubertazzi. It includes a CD that has more than 50 actual broadcasts of World War II by Murrow's team. All right, that about wraps up uh, this segment. We would note that Daniel Shore observed that, quote, in our business, there are few real heroes. A lot of stars and celebrities, but few real heroes. Edward R. Murrow was one of the very few, and we'll be speaking with him next. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax, and you're listening to KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento.